are continuing our study, um, basically, of the gospel. And what we set out to do in this series was to lay a foundation for the Easter season, um, really taking a look at a couple of very important major concepts, one of which is, what is the gospel? So week one, we took a look at this idea that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be saved. And, and, and this idea that Jesus is this great physician who stands ready to heal all who will come to him. Um, and, and we built this foundation that we are saved by grace through faith. That there's, there's no way we can earn it. Um, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to put God in our favor as to leverage something against him. But we saw that we are able to come to Jesus and not hide any sin, but to be completely honest with him. And we, had, we recognized that um, sometimes we feel like we can't be honest with God. Sometimes we feel like we've got to hide some things from him or not deal quite straight with him. Yet the fact of the matter is that God knows everything about us. There is nothing hidden from him. And then he knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And so we said that what we can trust is that God is tender towards us. And just as the poor beggar pleads his poverty in asking for assistance, we plead our sickness in asking for healing from the great physician, Jesus Christ. So that's what we did in week one. We laid that foundation. And last week, we took a look at this idea of why penal substitution? Why does Jesus Christ have to be killed for us? Can't God find some other way? Doesn't this seem just so weird and, and irrelevant in our 21st century context? Uh, and, and so what we did was we built this idea that God, according to Scripture, God dealt violently with his son so that he might be tender towards us. And in Jesus Christ, there was the wrath of God born, that, that, that God poured out all of his wrath and punishment on Jesus Christ in the cross because sin is offensive to God. But not only is sin offensive to God, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And you can't get away from paying that. So all sin will be dealt with, either in Christ on the cross or in hell. There's no, there's no middle ground. You are either a child of God or you're an enemy of God. And the only way that you're reconciled to be a child of God is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so we said penal, meaning penalty, to punish, substitute, substitute sitting in or taking the place of another. So Jesus Christ is our substitutionary atonement. And even if our culture says it's irrelevant, even if the culture says it doesn't make sense, what we have to look at is if the scripture says we need it, then we need it. If God says we need to be reconciled, we need to be reconciled, even if our culture doesn't get it and sees it as strange. Because the fact of the matter is that every one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. And every one of us will either be found in Christ or we will be found in our sin. So today, we're going to continue this thought process, and we're actually going to look at the humanity of Jesus Christ. And this is a, I confess, a highly theological concept. Um, we're getting to, into what's called the hypostatic union, and I bet not very many sermons are preached on the hypostatic union, so we've got to be careful not to go too uh, theoretical or too deep with this. But there is some richness here that must be understood if we are to understand two things. One, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and two, his resurrection. Who Jesus is is probably the most important question you could ever answer. Who is Jesus? 
And throughout church history, there's been a lot of heresies, a lot of false teaching that sprung up and had to be addressed, had to be refuted, had to be actually um, shot down, if you will, to say that, no, that is not what the scripture reveals. That is not a correct understanding of God. And what we have to understand is that when our concept of God does not align with scripture, in that degree, we are committing idolatry. When we start to take pieces of God that we like and rejecting the other pieces that are offensive to us or seem strange to us, and we only keep the parts that are good in our eyes, literally what we're doing is we're constructing an idol. So what we have to do is we have to come to Scripture and say, teach us, who are you, Jesus? Who is the Son of God? Who is this Messiah that the Scripture says we need? And so today we will take a look at who Jesus Christ is, particularly in light of his humanity. So the sermon title is, The Word Became Flesh When the God-Man Dies. And so the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is the Word became man to have his flesh broken so that the children of man might become the children of God. The Word became man so that his flesh might be broken so that the children of man might become the children of God. And I want to unpack that by making three stops this morning. I want to take a look at the person who took on flesh, which we see in John. And then also this idea of the word put to death, which we see in John 19, 28 through 30. And then we'll, fu- we'll finish up with this idea that we see in Acts, um, that there's a response. So our response and benefit, Acts 2, 23 through 41. So a person who took on flesh, the word put to death, in our response and benefit. And just as we get going this morning, I want to put a, a quick quote up on the screen for you to have in your heart and your mind as we get going. And this is from J.C. Ryle. It says, The second Adam is far greater than the first Adam ever was. Whew, that is good. So we're going to paint this picture of who this second Adam is this morning, all right? So if you will, stand with me, and we're going to read two passages. We're going to read one in John 19, and then we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 2. So if you can, get your scripture ready, and we will go in two places this morning. John 19, 28 through 30, and then Acts 2, 23. Through 41. So let's begin in John 19, verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We will start. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost for the context. Verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set the one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did, he, did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of what we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we are looking at some very, very important passages of Scripture. Not Not that any passage of Scripture is not important, but these are critical for rightly aligning our image of who Jesus Christ is in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to go back to John. So if you have your scripture, I know it's going to be a little bit of jumping around this morning, but go back to John 1. We're going to take just a second to look at this idea of, of, of the word and what, what this means. So a person who took on flesh. So we see right away in John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in the beginning... It goes all the way back, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a lot going on here, but the first thing that we have to recognize is, is that, that Jesus Christ existed before the Incarnation. Now, we alluded to it a little bit last week that Jesus uh, didn't have the name Jesus until he was born as a man. So, this is, this is kind of a strange concept for us, but Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, all right? So take, take, that, take that note, the second person of the Trinity. So you already have this Trinitarian idea right here in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And if you stop there, you may get this idea that this person is in proximity to God, but is it necessarily God? But the scripture doesn't leave us there. The scripture continues and makes it very clear that this word was not only from the beginning, but he was with God, but also the word was God. And so this is a very important doctrine for us to grasp, is that Jesus Christ existed before the incarnation. Jesus Christ existed as the word before he was born in human form. And only when he was born in human form did he take this name of Jesus the Christ. Do you catch that? Christ isn't his last name. We said that before and we'll say it again. Christ isn't his last name. He doesn't belong to the family of Christ's. 
Christ is an office. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. So what we have is in, in, in the beginning, um, I believe in the covenant of redemption, that there was this meeting, if you will, in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were like, we're not surprised that this thing we're about to create is going to fall and blow everything up. That's not a surprise to us. We see this happening. But let's come up with a plan to save them, to redeem them. So it wasn't like when God made Adam and Eve, he's like, well, I hope this goes well. We'll see. I don't know. Don't know how this will turn out. No, he knew, and he already had a plan. But what happened was in time, Adam and Eve fell. So there was this guy named Adam. He is the first man, and he's the representative of all mankind. And what happened was there was literally someone in flesh walking around, both, both having a, a body and a soul, walking around and, and enjoying fellowship with God. And so we have this idea that in all eternity past, the God had said, let's save this person and all of his offspring because we see what's going to happen. So what was the plan? Well, the plan was that this word, the second person of the Trinity, would become man. That he would become the second Adam. So in God's mind, there was already two Adams to come. Before the creation of the world, in God's mind, he knew that there would be two Adams. The first one would mess everything up, and the second one would set it all back straight. So really, we have to get this concept that Jesus Christ existed before the incarnation. Have that in your mind, because in the beginning was the word. But then he doesn't leave us there. It isn't as if this word, this, this second person of the Trinity only stays here. What do we see is we see in, in verse 14, and the word became flesh. So what you have is a temporal idea. In time, there is a becoming. So Jesus Christ is not the eternal God-man in the past. Now from his incarnation forward, he would be the eternal God-man. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But from his incarnation, if he worked backwards, he was not man. Because there was a literal point in time, according to Scripture, where Jesus became man. Where God saw it fitting that the second person of the Trinity, in order to redeem fallen man, would actually become man. Now, there's a lot of people in church history who've gotten crossed up on this. And so when we start to talk about who is Jesus, there have been those who have sat there and said, Jesus is not God, but he is man. And they can go there with the humanity side of it. I'm okay with Jesus being just another man, doing some good things, being a good teacher, but he's not God. Even the Jews looked at Jesus like, well, yeah, you do some cool things, but... As soon as you start talking about you being God, that's when we have a problem with you. Also, in our culture, lots of people are comfortable with Jesus being a good teacher. Lots of people are, are, are comfortable with, being, with Jesus being a good philosopher and a moral model, if you will. Just another Mother Teresa. No problem. That's not offensive at all. But when it becomes offensive is when we start to say, no, he is God. And he has a say on our lives. When we start to look at who Jesus is, and if he is who he says he is, then he has some say. He has some authority. Because he made everything. And we are subject to him as our creator. But if he's not, if he's just a man, 
there's not that much authority, is it? Someone at work can come up to you and say, hey, this is what I expect you to do. And if they're your boss, you're probably be like, well, okay, yeah, I got to listen. But if someone comes and they're your peer and they say, do what I say or else, what are you going to say to them? Who are you? And that's the concept we have is if Jesus is just a man, he's just like someone else who's another peer coming to us and he's got some advice and we can take it or we can leave it. Don't be too, don't be too firm with your advice, Jesus. You and me, we're on the same page, you see, right? That's, that's how we have this concept. So lots of people are okay with his humanity, but we get really uncomfortable when we start talking about, no, he is also God. Well, some would say, go so far to say, yeah, he's God, but his humanity isn't real. He's not actually flesh and bone like us. He just seems to be. That's one way you could go, and, and, and we have problems with that, and we'll, we'll talk through that in just a second. But there's another concept I want you to get, and this may be hardest for us in this room to wrestle through. And that's this concept that Jesus Christ and his body was not simply a shell for his divinity. I think a lot of people get this mixed up. They think that Jesus had a true body, but he's not truly a human like we are. But the miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus is both flesh and a human soul. He is, he is human just like we are. And now you're like, uh-oh, this is getting weird. But you have to understand that. There's no solution for, a, for us to be able to understand how does his divinity and his humanity live together in perfect harmony. No one understands that. There's a great mystery in that. But what you must be careful not to do is try to divorce the, the truths that Scripture tells us in order for it to make sense in the concepts we can understand. There's, there's concepts in physics that we just have to like go with and say, okay, some of this stuff seems pretty weird. Some of this quantum mechanics stuff, mm, not sure what's happening here. What, well, this dark matter, mm, not sure what's happening here. But what we have to be careful to, do, to not do is to crush these great truths into bite-sized chunks that fit with what we can understand and then be in error. Because what we have to recognize in order for Jesus to be truly the second Adam, he has to be man as we are in every way as we are, as the scripture says, yet without sin. So don't just think of his body as some shell for his divinity, his divinity to live in. No, Jesus Christ is absolute 100% man and 100% God. And that's important for us to get. But it says that he became flesh. And then it goes on to say that he lived just as we lived. I have another RC, uh, J.C. Ryle quote I, I'm going to read to you. I think he's correct when he says this. He says, when the word became flesh, he was made a man in the truth of our nature like unto us in all things. And from that hour has never ceased to be man. Whose humanity was not a different humanity from our own. And though now glorified, is our humanity still. So from the moment of the incarnation on, Jesus Christ has taken on our humanity. And today he is in human form. Where is Jesus? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But what does that look like? He looks like a man. Isn't that strange? I know that's hard for us to grasp, but Jesus Christ is the eternal God-man. And I'm building an argument that will make more sense 
next week, but just hold this premise if you can. That in order to redeem man, Jesus had to become truly man. His incarnation is very, very important. Very important for his work on the cross, but also in his resurrection. And we'll see that later. But in, in 14 it says, and dwelt among us. This is the beautiful image that we have is that in the beginning, the word was with God. And the word was God. But then at a certain point in time, God came as one of us to live among us. So I want you to imagine your neighborhood where you live right now. And your, there's a house that goes up for sale right next to you. People you know used to live there, moved out, the house goes up for sale. And then someone moves in. You go over and you talk to this man. Hey, my name is my name is Rob. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jesus. I am sent from the Father to save sinners. Interesting. But literally, that's what happened in history. Jesus lived somewhere. Jesus was, was a neighbor with somebody. He interacted with them, probably went over and borrowed some sugar. I don't know. But literally, he was flesh and blood, walked among us, dwelt among us. We have this concept of Jesus only existed for three years, and we see his ministry. Well, there's this weird thing back in the day when he's about 12 in the temple. I'm not really sure what happened there, but all we think about is these things. But literally, Jesus was somebody's neighbor. Somebody lived next to Jesus. Jesus is, uh, looks like he's not home, right? Jesus looks like he's out there doing some work, restucco in the house. I mean, the things you watch your neighbors do, right? Looks like he's got some visitors today. Wonder who that is. Maybe that's his in-laws. Well, nope, soup, excuse me, heresy. <laughs> Jesus didn't have in-laws because he had to be married. That's not true. But you can imagine him literally living with his creation. I want you to think about Jesus like that. Real Jesus. Not just God, Jesus, out of touch, way away, transcendent in every way, but real, he's my neighbor, Jesus. That's who we're talking about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to picture looking at someone just like you're looking at me right now. There were people who walked with him and could look him in the eye. There were people who walked with him who knew what his voice sounded like. There were people who walked with him and, and, and saw him get hungry, saw him get tired, have to sit down, need a drink of water. That's the Jesus we're talking about, who is in every way as we are, yet without sin. And this whole concept of God taking on flesh is very important. Because that's the only way that he can truly be the second Adam who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law and was able to shed literal blood for our place. We were singing about the blood of Jesus. And that's one of those Christianese things that we struggle with when we start talking to other people who are not believers yet. And we say, uh, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? They're like, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound like anything I want to do. But we're talking about real blood here. Why? Because Romans says that the wages of sin is death. 
that Jesus had to be a man in order to die. So I want to move to our next section, the word put to death, John 19, 28 through 30. And when Jesus was on that cross, he said, it is finished, and he bowed and gave up his spirit, verse 30. That means there was a point in time where Jesus' flesh was there, hanging on the cross, taken off the cross, put in a tomb, and his body was separate from his human soul. Just as when we die, that will happen. There will be a time where you and me, every one of us in this room, will sit in a box in front of everybody else who ever knew us, and they'll say, there's his body, or there's her body, but they're not there. Have you ever been to a funeral, and you walk by the casket, and you look at the person, and you're like, crazy. That's crazy. Because there they are, but they aren't there. Jesus on the cross, you could look at him. His mother could look up and see Jesus and say, there's my son, but he's not there. His humanity included having a soul. And there was a point in time when Jesus died and he gave up his soul. He gave up his spirit. And his flesh hung on the cross, lifeless. But it was still his body. It was still real flesh. Real blood dripped down that cross. His, his skin was actually torn up. His nerves felt the pain of all of that. He was in every way as we are yet without sin. And you have this idea, this miracle of the resurrection, but before you get to the miracle of the resurrection, there's a miracle in that God can die in the first place. There's a great miracle in the dead coming back to life, but the greater miracle is that the God of the universe, who is in very nature alive, could ever taste of death. He can't taste of death unless he becomes one of us, who has a, who has a physical body that can be put to death. And Jesus, in his humanity, he was broken for us. As I've said, the doctrine I'm trying to defend is the word became man to have his flesh broken so that the children of man might become the children of God. So we have a second Adam who came. Jesus was put to death having his body broken, his blood poured out as a pleasing sacrifice to God. We talked about that last week. That literally Jesus is the propitiation he appeases the wrath of God. We said we are saved from what? We are saved from God. We're not saved from hell. We are saved from God. But who sent the Son? God the Father. Who is the Son? God the Son. Who came to become man, to die in our place. And so we see that there is no sacrifice unless there is truly death. and true, Unless there's true bloodshed. So you can't think of penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, any of that stuff, a scapegoat who you tie all of your written sins on the ear of and send it out into the desert to be consumed by the wild animals and to die in your place. You have no imagery of this without real physical death. And so I want to put up here on the screen this very important point. Is that the birth of Christ we celebrate at, Christian, at Christmas was heading towards Easter. Why? Because the incarnation was preparation for a true death and resurrection. You say there is no cross without Christmas. But here I am now talking about the cross. But the incarnation was simply preparation 
for a real physical bodily death. Jesus was born as a baby boy so that he would grow up to be a man who would get nailed to the cross. That's the whole point of the incarnation. It's the whole point. So we have to realize this. The incarnation was preparation. It was part of the plan for what? For a true death and resurrection. The eternal God, man, and we'll apply this more with the resurrection next week. But I want to move to our, to our second um, uh, idea. And as we do, I want to remind you of this beautiful scripture from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 which from what I understand is, is a passage of scripture that, that gets passed over in the Jewish reading these days. But it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. So when we think of the word became flesh, he became flesh so that the word may be put to death and bear the iniquities of all of us sinners so that we might be accounted righteous because God the Father punished his son and dealt violently with his son so that he might hear tenderly towards us. So let's move into this idea of our response and benefit. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to look at this sermon at Pentecost and Peter is outlining, hey, here's what happened. Um, I want to put it up on the screen. This is a very, very important section here from this sermon. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop there. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It wasn't like they had this plan. I, when I say they, I mean the Godhead, the Trinity. It wasn't like they had this plan that maybe this will work. Maybe if you become man as they are, Jesus, and you take on flesh, maybe they'll kill you. Maybe. I don't know. Let's see what happens. Hey, can you be as controversial as you possibly can be? Because that will probably get the job done. That's not how it went. But Jesus was controversial. Right? He was. He spit the truth, and they, they hated him for it, and they wanted to kill him for it. But it was no accident. Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan. That means that this is going to happen. In foreknowledge of God, it's going to happen. But you crucified and killed him. Right? He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we must recognize that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to die. It was the plan of God to send the Son in human form to die. It was the definite plan according to his full, full for, foreknowledge in acting through the agency of mankind to bring about his death. But it wasn't an accident. And this was to fulfill scripture. Because the second person of the Trinity was willing to become a man, willing to become the second Adam to save the children of Adam. So that the children of Adam might become the children of God. Do you see that? Every one of us are the children of Adam. And C.S. Lewis, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, you know when they come, it's like, oh, you're, you're a child of Eve. You're a child of Adam. That's what we are. But we can be a, chil a child of God through the second Adam. 
And the scripture says, through one man, sin entered the world and many have died, right? But through the second Adam, we can be alive. We can be redeemed. So what was the response? Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Remember Christ, not a last name, but an office, Messiah, made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the sovereign ruler. He is the, he is the true Messiah, the true Savior, crucified according to the will of God. This is what we see in Romans 14. For this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Romans 14, 9. But then what was the response? I want to put it on the screen. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Yeshua, in the name of Savior Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's verse 38 of Acts 2. Do you see that they were cut to the heart when this message was preached to them? That this is part of God's plan, that the Savior would come and die for us. And our proper response is to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is, this, is, this is the idea that I want to have and, and as we end this morning, as we close up. I want you to have this in your mind that Jesus Christ existed before the incarnation. But the incarnation was preparation for the cross. Jesus Christ came and took on flesh to be man, to be human in every way as we are yet with, without sin so that he might go to the cross and literally die the death that you and I should have died so that it might be possible that we could be reconciled to God through his blood. Because the wrath of God is appeased in seeing Jesus, the son of God, punished on the cross for our sins. But he doesn't leave him there. And we'll, t we'll, t we'll take up this, 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 this story next week when we look at the resurrection. But before we can have power in the resurrection and hope in the resurrection and a bodily resurrection, you first have to have a body that is put to death. For you and me. So as we close this morning. I want you to stand with me. And I, I want us to think just a little bit. About this idea of what it looks like. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine a real physical Jesus. A Jesus that you could reach out and touch. A real Jesus that would embrace you with a hug and you could feel. That he is a person just as you are. I want you to imagine Jesus Christ walking this earth. And wherever he turned his head he would see just as you and I see. And when he went to sleep every night, he would dream just like you and I dream. He would feel tired and need to go to sleep at night. 
that when he would wake up in the morning, he would feel what you and I feel. That he's been re-energized through the rest. And I want you to think of Jesus getting hungry and feeling weak, but after taking some food was strengthened. I want you to imagine Jesus when he was receiving those lashes for us, that he felt every bit of it as his true flesh was torn off of his body, as the crown of thorns was crammed onto his skull, and they ripped into his eyebrows and into his forehead. He felt the warm trickle of his own blood go down his face. That when he was given his cross to carry to the places of the skull, he couldn't do it. He literally couldn't do it because he was so weak. And another had to come and help him. When he was nailed to that cross and he was put up there and hung before everybody, his very body, naked and exposed to all who would look, and you would see Jesus fully exposed before his creation. And if you made eye contact with him, you would look into your own creator's eyes. And at the same time, his very mother Mary would look up and see her son, who she raised, who she was proud of, who she held dear there with no way out, but to sit there on the cross in his final moments of his life, struggling to breathe. And as the mockers yelled, look, there's the man who saved others but cannot save himself. As they yelled that there was irony in what they said. And the irony behind them, the irony, the, the, the mockers intended to insult him, but they, they exposed a vital truth that they didn't see. That the man who can't save himself saves others. And if Jesus would have gotten off that cross, you and I would be lost. But he stayed there. And refusing to save himself, he saved others. So hearing this, may our hearts too be broken may we respond in repentance for the believers I pray you look at Jesus as our tender savior the one who came and knows what it's like to suffer like we suffer he is the mediator he is the one who goes between God and man because he is uniquely qualified as the eternal God man this week as you're struggling, as you're feeling weak, as you're feeling the limitations of your humanity, be comforted that Jesus Christ is not far from you. He knows. And when you're crushed by your sin, be reminded that Jesus Christ literally 
his life so that you wouldn't be guilty anymore. For those who are not believers, I pray that you consider Jesus Christ, the true savior of the world, the true shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And all who believe in him, he will not cast out. So Father, I pray that you move in this room this morning. Let us see Jesus as he truly is. In Jesus' name. Let's continue to worship. If you need to come pray, pray. If you want to sit right where you're at and pray, that's fine. But spend this time thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and how we benefit that we have a mediator.